TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. Allowed 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months. You are entering the news vault from KCBS Radio. Flames and the smoke. I have a tape recorder in my hand. Now nobody would think of doing that. The newsmen were blocking the door. It worked for a couple of seconds. Bringing the sounds of history back to life. Here is your host, Stan Bunger. Welcome back to the podcast, and uh, this time we're going to dial things back to 1962 for a documentary broadcast entitled The Silent Thunder. It was a retrospective look at the battles in the Pacific Theater during World War II. And of course, you have to remember in 1962 that war had been fought less than 20 years before the end of the war in 1945. This was the work of KCBS reporter Fred Gurner, a man who left a wide swath at KCBS, joining the station in the late 1950s. He would be a mainstay of the station's news department with a number of creative features and programs and documentaries uh, well into the 1960s. He passed away in San Francisco in 1994. This documentary includes Fred Gurner's interview with retired Admiral Chester Nimitz, then living in the East Bay Hills, as well as his reporting from Tinian Island, the launching point for the 1945 atomic bomb attacks on Japan. Gurner became quite familiar with Tinian and neighboring islands. He would visit the South Pacific a few more times as he became immersed in the unsolved mystery of Amelia Earhart's disappearance. That led him to produce a documentary on KCBS and write a book that became a bestseller in 1966, The Search for Amelia Earhart. This is a fascinating piece to listen to for a number of reasons. Uh, First, the notion of a nearly hour-long radio documentary uninterrupted by commercials. You'll want to pay particular attention to the pacing and the production value. Truly, radio from a bygone era. The Silent Thunder, broadcast on KCBS in 1962. 6.20 a.m., December 7, 1941. 200 miles north of Oahu in the Hawaiian island chain. A Japanese task force of 33 ships stands ready to launch one of the greatest aerial assaults in the history of warfare against the United States naval forces lying at rest in Pearl Harbor. The strike has been planned over a period of more than 18 months. The positioning of American strength has been worked out in miniature scale models. The Japanese are sure the attack will succeed. Their emissaries are still in Washington negotiating. This task force includes six aircraft carriers, two battleships, three cruisers, 11 destroyers, three submarines, and eight supply ships. The launching begins. Three hundred and fifty-three Japanese carrier-based aircraft are launched. 
At 7.40 a.m., the first wave streaks in over Oahu from the west, striking first at Schofield Barracks and Wheeler Field, then swinging eastward to Bomb and Strafe Bellows Field and the Kaneohe Naval Air Station. The wave then splits to hit grounded aircraft at Ford Island, Hickam Field, and Iwa. At 8 a.m., another wave. This time, a flight of torpedo bombers flies through the morning overcast to Pearl Harbor itself. Then high-level bombers coordinate from the south. At 8.40 a.m., the dive bombers move in. Finally, at 9 a.m., the last waves of torpedo and dive bombers come searching for targets of opportunity. The cost to America is dear. 3,067 American servicemen killed. 18 ships sunk or damaged, including the USS West Virginia, Arizona, Oklahoma, Utah, Vestal, California, Nevada, Raleigh, Pennsylvania, Cassin, Downs, Helena, Honolulu, and Shaw. Colonel Mildred I. Clark of the U.S. Army Nurse Corps was there. I was a very young second lieutenant on duty at Schofield Barracks at North Sector General Hospital on the Sunday morning of the 7th of December. One of the most vivid recollections I had is the telephone rang and within about three minutes I reported to duty at the hospital. At that time we were receiving casualties and I should say mass casualties. And uh, I immediately started uh, giving anesthetics. I was an anesthetist, and I administered, went from one patient to the next, administering to them all types of casualties, all types of wounds, all day and into the night. And uh, I just don't remember very much about any lax time there for many days following. It was uh, a shock to all of us. While we prepare, always as nurses to discipline ourselves to any future disaster where it be at home abroad national or otherwise it uh, perhaps uh, as a nurse i was able to function completely without thinking of any danger even though the planes were over our hospital out of the smoke flames and death of Pearl Harbor came the kind of strength we needed. The strength of Americans united. In every community, the words, remember Pearl Harbor, became a challenge, a dedication. Never in modern history was a war begun with so smashing a victory by one side, and never in recorded history did the initial victor pay so dearly for his calculated treachery. In the four years that followed, American fighting forces slugged their way back across the Pacific and a flood of names became a part of our everyday vocabulary. Kwajalein, Truck, Peleliu, Angaur, Guam, Saipan, Tinian. In the next 50 minutes, we'll follow the course of World War II in the Pacific and revisit many of the areas that suffered the effects of that war some 20 years ago, learning what has happened to their inhabitants politically and economically. The thunder of invasion has long been silent, but it irrevocably changed the lives of all who experienced it. We should be aware of and understand those changes. In this shrinking world, it concerns and affects all of us. When the United States was forcefully brought into World War II by the Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor, 
we did not have the strength to aggressively combat our enemies on two fronts. We turned our first attention to the Germans in Europe. The Japanese, however, could not be put off for too long a time. They systematically pressed their offensives. Our position in the Pacific might have been much more hazardous had the Japanese capitalized more fully on her victory at Pearl Harbor. Most Americans have the tendency to think of December 7, 1941 as a complete disaster for the United States Naval Forces at Pearl. One man, at least, doesn't believe this to be true. That man is Fleet Admiral Chester W. Nimitz, who was called to Washington by President Roosevelt December 16, 1941, and given command of a large portion of the South Pacific, an area that included the Solomon Islands, the Gilberts, the Marshalls, Carolines, and the Marianas. I spent an afternoon with Admiral Nimitz several weeks ago at his home in the hills above Berkeley, California. He gave me a fresh insight into the Pearl Harbor tragedy and the strategic planning for the war in the Pacific that followed. We'll return to Pearl Harbor and its question later in the program, at which time I'll give you the Nimitz view. During that first year and a half, there were moments when America struck hard, a taste of what was to come. One of those moments came on June 8, 1942, as Admiral Nimitz announced the results of the Battle of Midway, which had been fought from the 3rd through the 6th of June. Documents recently made available show that the Battle of Midway was the turning point of the naval war in the Pacific. Some historians have propounded that the Japanese felt it necessary to attack Midway because of the Doolittle raid on Tokyo. The raid had been accomplished by land-based bombers, and Midway was the closest U.S.-held territory to the Japanese home islands. Was this the case? Oh, it might have had something to do. I don't know what was in their minds. But, uh, of course, I think Admiral Yamamoto was anxious to bring our fleet out there and have a fleet action and eliminate that. But uh, Admiral Nimitz was too smart for it. The voice of Admiral Raymond Spruance, who commanded Task Force 16 at the Battle of Midway. Nimitz's astuteness was borne out by the results. Japan lost four aircraft carriers, a heavy cruiser, and 332 aircraft. What was the significance of Midway? I would say that the outcome of the Battle of Midway was of great importance in not lengthening the war, because it gave us, we didn't lose uh, Midway, and it was developed into a submarine base, and our submarines then went out from Pearl Harbor and uh, refueled and provisioned and so forth before they went on out on their patrols. And as you know, the submarines played a big part in uh, bringing the Japanese war to a successful conclusion. And they operated in areas which we couldn't get to for a long time. Well, we had a fine bunch of people under my command there who had been trained by Admiral Halsey. Unfortunately, Admiral Halsey went to the hospital when we got back just before the battle and but, uh, everybody did the job in, in fine shape and uh, there was an awful lot of uh, good fortune as well as bad in that thing when the, all the returns were in. By November 1943, America's strength had tripled and we were ready to concentrate on a big effort in the Pacific. With the coming of New Year's 1944, 
we were a long way from bringing Japan to her knees. The islands of Micronesia stretched across the Pacific as a formidable barrier to any advance upon Japan. The Marshalls, Carolines, and Marianas. So little was known about them by others than the Japanese that the secrecy which shrouded them added greatly to the conventional problems of strategy. Admiral Nimitz and the other planners accepted the premise that Japan had fortified the islands prior to the war in direct contradiction to the terms of the League of Nations mandate. Their assumptions were later proven entirely correct. Admiral Ernest J. King, Commander-in-Chief, United States Fleet and Chief of Naval Operations, favored a drive through Micronesia. Many other ranking naval officers were not too happy with such thoughts. There was so little known about the mystery islands, the extent of the defenses, the depth of water in the lagoons. But one fact was certain. The whole area of the Central Pacific could not be bypassed. If American forces made an advance upon Japan proper, without relatively close supply bases, it would be near suicide. Admiral King won his point, and it was decided to move through the Marshalls, Truck, and the Marianas. In the minutes that follow, we'll make the same move, some 18 years after the actual invasions. We'll visit Kwajalein, Majuro, Truk, Guam, Saipan, Tinian, talk with natives and administrators, recount the stories of the invasions, and find out what has happened in the years since the thunder fell silent. The marshals came first in the stepping stone operation and with special historical significance. The marshals were the first pre-war Japanese-held territory to be wrested from the enemy. Kwajalein, in the center of the marshals' group, was the prime target. By the fall of 1943, Kwajalein had become the headquarters of the Japanese Fourth Fleet with considerable air power. Majuro, in the southern marshals, was second in importance because of its excellent lagoon suitable for fleet anchorage. On January 29, 1944, U.S. carrier-based planes began pre-invasion air assaults. 15,000 tons of ammunition were dropped on Kwajalein alone with telling effect. Not a single enemy plane remained operational. In something of a comic opera landing on January 30th, the Majuro attack force moved in on that atoll with all due caution, only to discover with great pleasure that the Japanese had already pulled out. One battalion of the 106th Infantry Regiment of the 27th Division was moved ashore at Majuro, and Admiral Hill moved his ships into the beautiful spacious lagoon. A lagoon that was to be host to the 5th Fleet and nearly every U.S. naval vessel before the end of the war. The northern attack force was not as lucky at Kwajalein. On the morning of February 1st, 1944, the Navy's new underwater demolition teams were used for the first time. And at noon of the same day, the 23rd and 24th Regimental Combat Teams of the 4th Marine Division landed. There was some bitter fighting before the island complex was secured on February 7th. Of the more than 41,000 troops committed by the U.S. Marine Corps and Army, 372 were killed, 1,582 wounded. The Japanese forces were almost annihilated, with nearly 8,000 killed. In 1962, Kwajalein anything but resembles the barren, ugly coral reef of World War II. It supports a bustling space-age island community with palm groves, swimming pools, and air-conditioned homes and offices. Right after the war, Quaj, as anyone who has been there calls it, became very important to the U.S. because of the nuclear testing in the Marshalls. But in 1959, 
It really received an injection from Fort Knox when the Army decided to bring its Nike Zeus anti-missile missile system tests to the Pacific. The Pacific Missile Range Facility, Kwajalein, was selected as the launch site, and the island's fortunes began to rise at a space-age pace. 3,000 people are living on the island today, most of them civilians with specialist ratings. Things have looked up in all ways at Quaj. Sports and recreation-wise, there's the usual marlin fishing, swimming, boating, diving, and shelling. But a few things have been added since the invasion 18 years ago. A standard-sized nine-hole golf course, tennis and basketball courts, softball and football fields, bowling alleys, libraries, five theaters, and four clubs provide diversions during evening hours. Yes, things have gotten pretty posh at Kwajalein in 1962. There's just one distraction, the roar of a Nike Zeus rocket going away from its launch pad to intercept an incoming Atlas intercontinental missile from the United States. To the south and east at Majuro, things are not quite as happy. Peter Coleman, former governor of American Samoa and now district administrator of the Marshals for the Department of the Interior, has but a fraction of the trust territory seven and one half million dollar budget to administer to the welfare of 16,000 natives on 34 islands scattered over 180,000 square miles of ocean. Majuro looks much the same as it did at the end of the war. The airstrip from which our B-24s and 25s flew missions against the Carolines is still in operation. A trust territory plane lands once a week. The wreckage and refuse of both the Japanese and Americans still litters the causeways and the beaches. I spoke with Mr. Dwight Heine, who is District Administrator for Education and President of the Marshallese Congress, a powerless but quite outspoken group of men. Mr. Heine is a Marshallese himself, educated in Honolulu. I asked him what the reaction of the Marshallese people has been to the nuclear testing that has taken place in their islands. Well, it was quite a hot issue only a few years back, but not as bad as it was. And uh, they, like the adults, that their parents, they heard them talk, and they also take part in all the discussion. I think there's no question about it that the people didn't like it at all. Other Marshallese had told me frightening stories about the natives of the island of Rongalap, who had been caught by nuclear fallout. My next question was directed to that subject. I think the reaction of the Marshallese people can be, uh, be demonstrated in the petition they sent in 1954, when they heard about the people getting hurt from the, from the fallout. The Marshallese Congress all over committee get together and send a petition to the United Nations. Rongalap lies slightly east and a little bit south of Bikini Atoll. I asked Mr. Heine how many people were involved in the incident. There were over 100 people, about 180 some. There were about a few others on Atoll to a lesser degree. They were not as badly hurt as the other, only slightly. And, uh, well, they seem to be, uh, uh, they seem to have recovered. They uh, grew back and they they saw all healed, except that from years to years we have years to years we have these AC doctors coming to see about their about their uh, development and growth and improvement and so on. A concerted effort is being made to educate the Marshallese. The Marshall Islands education system consists of fifty-three elementary schools and two intermediate schools. Curriculum consists of courses and training in English. Marshallese, 
social studies, science, mathematics, agriculture, home arts, industrial arts, and music. Dwight Heine has strong thoughts about the value of education to the people of the Marshalls. Here, it's not only these benefits that we think of, but in these islands, we have led a way of life which was fitting for us when we are isolated from the rest of the world. But now, we realize, and we feel it, you do not have to convince anyone in these islands that we are part of a great world. In order to live in that world, the kind of upbringing we have, the kind of education that we receive from our home and from our elders, it's not adequate to make us live in the kind of world all of a sudden we found ourselves in. The Marshall Islands, 1962, are making a strong bid to take their place in the 20th century world. Next stop in our tour of World War II battlefields in the Central Pacific, Japan's Pearl Harbor of the Pacific, Truck. Beginning in the middle 1930s, the Japanese propaganda mill ground out the phrases Truck, the Gibraltar of the Pacific, Truck, Japan's impregnable fortress, Truck, the unsinkable aircraft carrier. For the U.S. Navy before the war, there was no way of testing that propaganda. In 1944, Admiral Nimitz was faced with the possibility of having to order an amphibious assault against the legendary island complex. If the rumors were correct, truck could effectively block the road to the Marianas. Wisely, Nimitz decided to test the naval and aerial defenses of Japan's Pearl Harbor with a fast carrier strike and dispatched Admiral Mark Mitchers, Task Force 58. With repeated strikes on February 17th and 18th, 1944, Mitchers' carrier planes found truck to be a fraud fortress. The Japanese fleet had fled, deserting its cargo ships to the U.S. torpedo and dive bombers. Nimitz and the other planners then decided truck could be safely bypassed. For the remainder of the war, Liberator and Mitchell bombers flying from the Marshalls aided by U.S. submarines always on station, kept the Japanese Pearl Harbor neutralized. The full extent of the truck fraud was not realized until after Japan's capitulation. On August 30, 1945, the USS Stack moved into Truck Lagoon, and Brigadier General L.D. Hermley, U.S. Marine Corps, received its official surrender. It had been reported that the Japanese forces on the 11 islands of the complex numbered 130,000. The actual count was a little over 38,000. Surrounded by an enormous coral ring in places more than 40 miles across from one side of the lagoon to the other, Truk is one of the most beautiful areas in the Pacific. It is also one of the most remote. Moen and Dublon are the two main islands. In 1962, the Department of Interior officials make their headquarters on mountainous Moen and administer to the welfare of some 22,000 natives who live on the islands of the 180,000 square mile truck district. Copra is their main source of income, which is very small. Transportation seems to be the greatest difficulty. Several years ago, the Department of Interior began a cacao planting program, and as of two months ago, it was meeting with some success. In talking with the natives, I discovered a strange thing. Many of them would not be at all unhappy if the Japanese returned. 
Their economy, they claim, was much better under the Japanese. I asked Robert Halverson, truck district administrator, if the feeling was general throughout the area. I would say that is partly true. Uh, there was a higher level of economic development under the Japanese also because of the subsidization of economic development programs and small industry by the Japanese government, primarily uh, for the benefit of their colonists and to obtain some materials which were needed in the Japanese homeland. It was not a realistic development. It appears to be the fervent hope of the Truckees people in 1962 that the United States development will become just that, realistic. While the Japanese wartime strength at truck was pretty much a myth, even today it is obvious a U.S. invasion of the area might have been the most costly of the entire Pacific campaign. The mountains of Moan and Dublon contain a fantastic network of reinforced concrete tunnels, machine shops, and gun emplacements built by the Japanese. As one moves through those tunnels, an aperture will suddenly appear, and there will be a huge coastal defense gun trained on the entrance to the lagoon, waiting for the ships that never came. Many American men are living today because Nimitz made the decision. On to the Marianas. Guam, a little over 30 miles long and 10 miles wide, had been under U.S. naval control prior to the Japanese invasion in 1941. July 21st, 1944, the U.S. Navy returned with friends. The 3rd Marine Division, 1st Provisional Marine Brigade, 77th Infantry Division, and the 3rd Amphibious Corps troops. They moved across Asan and Agate beaches behind a curtain of fire laid down by the ships offshore. The going wasn't easy. The Japanese defenders were tenacious and skillful fighters. It was August 10th before Marine Corps Major General Roy Geiger announced the island was secure. Since my visit to Guam two months ago, the island has been devastated once again, with a fierceness equal to the battles of 1944. This time, the enemy was a typhoon with winds beyond 200 miles an hour, causing damage estimated in the tens of millions of dollars. The rebuilding has begun anew. Today, the population of Guam is nearing 70,000. Almost 40,000 of that number are native Chamorans or statesiders who have come to work for the government. The remaining 30,000 are military personnel, either Navy or Air Force. Admiral Nimitz's old quarters on Nimitz Hill are occupied by Admiral John S. Coy, Jr., the Commandant of the Mariana Sea Frontier. One of Coy's present duties is to supervise the building of Polaris submarine tender facilities scheduled to go into operation soon. Harmon Field, on the north end of the island, once the home of the 20th Air Force, is now being claimed by the jungle. Anderson Field is currently a home of the Strategic Air Command. The hundreds of thousands of American fighting men who passed through or were stationed on Guam during the last year of the war would not recognize the island or its people in 1962. Bridget Bardot hairdos for the native girls. Motion picture theaters and modern stores in downtown Agana. Commercial radio and television stations. One reminder of the conflict of 18 years ago still remains. It is a strange, bizarre reminder known as the straggler. 
The world blinked its eyes two years ago when U.S. military authorities on Guam announced that two Japanese soldiers had come out of the jungle and given themselves up, 16 years after the war. This year, another incident. A Japanese soldier attacked a hunter with a hatchet and was shot to death. It's almost too incredible to believe unless you have seen the jungles on Guam. Lieutenant Juan Aguan of the Guam Police Department was for many years a member of the Guam Combat Patrol, a group of Chamorans dedicated to finding and eliminating the stragglers. Does Aguan believe the jungles still hold Japanese who will not or cannot accept the fact that the war has ended? Well, I dare say yes, especially in the air where this man was ambushed, was killed. In the place where they called Kauharu, down as far as where this man was killed, that area is, is abundant of edible root foods. There are a lot of the streams there where the eels and shrimps, not only that, but there are a lot of deers in that area that they could exist as long as they live. As long as they live could be quite a while. A Japanese soldier in his early 20s in 1944 would still be a relatively young man today. The story of the stragglers is pedestrian, alongside the story I found on Saipan, 115 miles to the north. Saipan cost the United States 16,525 casualties. A fearful price for an island 12 miles long and 5 miles wide. The United States committed over 67,000 men to wrest it from the Japanese. Corps troops, 5th Amphibious Corps, 2nd Marine Division, 4th Marine Division, 1st Battalion, 29th Marines, 27th Infantry Division, and the 24th Corps Artillery. General Holland Smith later wrote, I have always considered Saipan the decisive battle of the Pacific Offensive. Saipan was the naval and military heart and brain of Japanese defense strategy. The Japanese forces fought to the death. Of 30,000 troops, 29,000 were killed or listed as missing. Of all the battlefields of World War II, Saipan still bears the most obvious scars. The wreckage of landing craft and tanks litter her reefs. The superstructures of sunken ships protrude above the surface of her harbors. In Tanapag Harbor, I dove with Coast Guard and Navy divers. It is like another world. Aircraft, jeeps, ammunition, merchant and war vessels, and a submarine lie in twisted, mangled heaps covered with slime and growing coral. In the jungles, thousands of tons of unexploded ammunition still remain. I met three courageous men on Saipan. Navy Quartermaster First Class Thomas Huggins of Sligo, Missouri. Lee Porter, Boatswain Mace 2nd Class of West Columbia, South Carolina, and Air Force Staff Sergeant Thomas Gilbert of Spiro, Oklahoma. Trained at the Naval Propellant Plant at Indian Head, Maryland, it is their job to detonate that ammunition. I made this recording as they worked. At this moment, I am standing in the jungle on the island of Saipan, about two miles north of the native village of Chalankanoa, and about three miles south of what was once the Japanese city of Garapan. About 15 feet from me are three representatives of the armed forces who are doing one of the most dangerous jobs in the Pacific. They are uncovering and collecting ammunition that has been left since the end of World War II. Now these three men, two are representatives of the Navy and the other of the Air Force. 
The leader of the group is Thomas Huggins, a quartermaster first class. And they are presently working on a Japanese landmine. It's a big one. I can see it from here. It's got handles on it, and they have dehorned the top of it. Now, there are three landmines in this area. They were reported this morning to the local constabulary. And at this moment, the three men are on their hands and knees with their trench knives, and they're digging underneath the landmine to make sure that it has not been booby-trapped. And I think they have satisfied themselves. They've decided that it is not booby-trapped. And now two of the men are picking up the landmine, and they're moving away from me across toward a truck. Now, they'll put the landmine on the truck together with the other two landmines, and it is my understanding they'll be taken to the north end of the island to Marpy Point, where they'll be put with other ammunition that has been collected and detonated later this afternoon. After the landmines were safely loaded aboard the truck, I asked Huggins how long he'd been at this job. This makes my fifth trip down to Saipan, and during this period, all of us have completed uh, doing away with over a million pounds of explosive on the island. This question has probably already occurred to you as it did to me. How does a man get such a job? It's all strictly volunteer and all of us are trained in the Navy, trained underwater. We're all divers and the Air Force Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines all go to the same school. Everybody has the same amount of training officers and enlisted. What are the different kinds of ammunition that you come across on these islands? Well, here on Saipan we have starting from 50 caliber, working right on up through 57 millimeter knee mortar, Japanese. We have the 75 millimeter, we have the 70 millimeter, we have 105, we have the 90 millimeter, we have the 155, we have the 240, we have 8 inch, along with these landmines. Now this is the fourth JE type mine that we found here on the island. Mm -hmm. We found two place mines which are Japanese warheads. They weighed in the neighborhood of 1800 pounds each. Well now it took all the courage I could muster to stand close to you while you were excavating these landmines and putting them aboard the truck. How much danger do you think is involved in this kind of work? Well there's in any type of work there's certain amount of danger and in this type of work one mistake is your last one final test there's any time that ordinance has been sitting around in the weather such as this some of this ordinance doesn't even need a detonator to to detonate just <coughs> step on it touch it kick it drop it move it too unexpectedly and sometimes just a change in temperature such as the sun and the shade hitting it and it'll go off just by itself. Well, now you'll take these landmines from here to the northern part of the island. Now, how will you detonate these landmines? We will countercharge with other explosive and detonate the countercharge, and they will sympathetic detonation will set them off. Then you pile all of this ammunition together and you detonate it with other charges, is that it? Uh, this is true. Now, this million pounds, of course, wasn't put in one pile. This average is from maybe 700 pounds to 28,000 pounds at one time, depending on the amount of explosive right in the immediate area so that we don't have to carry it too far. Mm -hmm. Are you married, Tom? Yes, I'm married. I have three children. What does your wife think of you doing this kind of work? Well, 
everybody's got to have a way of making a living. This is mine. Tom Huggins and his crew are not the first men on Saipan to have a strange profession. This broadcast is the first time we have been able to speak of one of the most secret U.S. projects since the end of World War II, a project that has continued for a decade on the island of Saipan, behind one of the tallest and broadest walls of cloak and dagger secrecy ever established around any area. In 1952, the United States Navy took back the control of Saipan from the Department of Interior and closed the island to outside visitors. Nearly $30 million was spent to create a series of permanent concrete structures on the north end and east end of the island. These units were called Naval Technical Training Units. But the Navy was a front, a front for one of the most elaborate spy schools in the world. While working on another story in 1960, I managed to reach Saipan with the help of CBS executive Cy Whitelaw, who opened a few magic doors in Washington. During my stay on the island in 1960, and during a later visit in 1961, I learned of the top-secret operation. CBS was asked to hold the story for the sake of national security. We have done just that for nearly three years. Within the last few days, it was decided that the information could finally be made public. For ten years, the location of this spy school, in fact the very existence of the school, was one of America's most preciously guarded secrets. Only individuals with top security clearance could gain access to Saipan. Most of the trainees did not even know the exact area of the Pacific where they learned, from civilian professors, the art of espionage. They were flown in at night to Kagman Field on the eastern side of the island and taken in closed buses with shades drawn to one of the special areas in the jungle. When they departed, the same method was used. Their art is a special one. Parachuting behind or infiltrating through communist lines, penetrating deep into the heart of communist countries on any one of a thousand assignments. Men with forged credentials, able to speak the language of the country they have penetrated. On my second visit to Saipan in 1961, I was permitted entrance to the secret area, and the shock was beyond description. There was a modern town, more handsomely constructed than most better-class suburbs in America. This was where the civilian experts lived. Nearly a hundred two- and three-bedroom homes, an apartment house for the single members of the teaching group, a beautiful auditorium, and a nightclub, restaurant, and bar that belongs on the outskirts of Las Vegas. The training areas were much less elaborate, but no less sturdy. Barracks of permanent concrete, big enough to hold a platoon of men, and classrooms of the same construction. How many men of how many different nationalities learned the art of espionage and the techniques of a special kind of jungle warfare is anybody's guess. The reign of the spies and their American teachers ended on July 1st of this year for a number of reasons. Too many people were asking to come to Saipan and couldn't understand when permission was denied. And then, too, the last United Nations inspection team, while not aware of Saipan's secret, still was not complimentary about the administration of the entire area. During the past ten years, the Saipanese people, some 8,000 of them, were permitted only to inhabit the southern part of the island, and many were not too happy with the situation. Since July 1st, there have been a lot more smiles. Mr. M. W. Godding, High Commissioner of the Trust Territory of the Pacific for the United States Department of Interior, made his headquarters at Guam until the departure of NTTU from Saipan this year. 
It was promptly decided the Trust Territory headquarters should be located at Saipan, and he and his staff have inherited the comfortable quarters of the master espionage agents. With an area so large, I was naturally curious about the budget. Well, <clears throat> the uh, budget uh, for the uh, government of the Trust Territory, funds granted by the Congress of the United States, have amounted to approximately seven and a half million dollars. <clears throat> the uh, first efforts after the administration was taken over by the Navy, the area was administered first as a uh, military government area and then later under the trusteeship agreement by the Navy as the uh, responsible <clears throat> administering agency. The Department of the Interior took over the jurisdiction for the administration of most of the area in 1951. Uh, more recently, as recently as July of this year, the Interior Department took over the administration of what we call the Marianas District, the island of Saipan, where we are now talking. Uh, the first jobs, and jobs that I think were very well done, were those of meeting the urgent problems of getting food, transportation, logistics, and medical and basic educational programs going. Among the different programs, I think that perhaps the most, uh, uh, the greatest overall success has perhaps been in the area of medicine. Uh, we certainly have a long way to go in almost every area, education, and in public health, and in overcoming the rather terrific logistic problems of the area and the problems of economic development. A few months ago, M.W. Godding appeared before the United Nations and was asked about the possibility of refugee Chinese settling in the Trust Territory. I asked the same thing. My answer is that in terms of the acreage of land or the very small land area that we have, the 700 square miles is a very, uh, of which only a part is uh, agriculturally suitable, uh, is simply too small to do very much for the evacuated Chinese. And on the other hand, we have a population pressure and a population growth in this area that is probably second to none in the world that uh, the what area we have uh, is simply required for the people or will be required very shortly. The population increase since the end of the war has been from approximately 50,000 to 80,000 and the annual rate of increase is approximately three and a half percent. M.W. Godding, High Commissioner of the Trust Territory of the Pacific. It's time to move on to the last battlefield in our tour it's just across the channel from Saipan. Tinian has been called the most perfectly executed invasion of the war. It was accomplished by the same marine and naval forces that had won the decision at Saipan. And the losses, while painful, were but a fraction of Saipan. Tinian is smaller than Saipan, just ten and one half by five miles, but much flatter. Ideal for the construction of airfields. And that's exactly what we had in mind. A new long-range bomber had been developed, labeled B-29. When Tinian was secured August 2, 1944, 
and the Seabees began to clear the entire north end of the island for landing strips. No one could have guessed. The war was just a year and a few days from a complete Allied victory. An announcement was made 17 years ago, August 6, 1945, in Washington, D.C., by President Truman. An announcement that initiated the nuclear era we live in today. The first atomic bomb had been dropped on the Japanese city of Hiroshima. It is a harnessing of the basic power of the universe, said President Truman. The force from which the sun draws its power has been loosed against those who brought war to the Far East. In mid-July 1945, the Navy cruiser USS Indianapolis had moved out of San Francisco Harbor, bound for Tinian in the Marianas Islands. In a special compartment in one of her holds, the Indianapolis carried the components of the first atomic bomb to be used on a military objective. By early evening of August 5th, the bomb had been assembled and was being loaded into an Air Force B-29 dubbed the Enola Gay. You were on Tinian, at that time the world's largest airfield, in a small briefing shack at the north end of the island, with the men who were to fly this mission. Air Force Chaplain William Downey stands before a huge target chart and says a prayer for these men and the future of mankind. We pray thee that the end of the war may come soon, and that once more we may know peace on earth. May the men who fly this night be kept safe in thy care, and may they be returned safely to us. We shall go forward trusting in thee, knowing that we are in thy care now and forever. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Colonel Paul Tibbetts, Jr. taxied the Enola Gay from her revetment and bomb loading pit onto the main runway of Tinian's North Field, gained clearance from the tower, and opened the throttles of the huge B-29. Within the last few yards of oiled asphalt, the ship broke ground and was airborne. The heading was 265 degrees as the Enola Gay flew west at just over 31,000 feet. Her ground speed was 285 miles an hour. As the coastline of Japan became visible, the Gay's crew saw no fighters in the sky. Short of war supplies, Japan was not wasting ammunition or fuel on high-flying observation planes. Hiroshima lay open and unsuspecting beneath the 29. Like the target photograph he had stared at a hundred times, Bombardier Fear B saw the city unfold, his view obscured only by a few drifting clouds. The target point was to be the main bridge over the Ota River. Gradually, it moved toward the center of the crosshairs of the Gay's bomb site. Fear B activated the automatic synchronization. The 29 was on the final minute of its bomb run. 45 seconds later, the bombing radio tone signal was engaged. In 15 seconds, the bomb would leave the plane. A few seconds after 8.15 a.m., the Gay's bomb bay doors sprang open automatically in response to the preset signal on the bombing panel. The departing bomb broke a circuit, and abruptly the radio tone stopped. Little Boy, as the bomb was called, dropped clear, righted itself, and plummeted for the Ota River. The B-29 lurched up. She was suddenly 10,000 pounds lighter. Tibbets turned the gay in a wide, sweeping arc from its westward course. Bombardier Fearby had started his count as Little Boy left the plane. 18, 19, 
20. Thirty-nine, forty, forty-one, forty-two, forty-three. The Enola Gaze crew had been warned not to look in the direction of the blast, but few could resist. A kaleidoscope of ugly purplish-orange color obliterated the face of a city with the most frightening explosion the world had ever seen. In the smallest fraction of a second, a typhoon-like wind of fire 2,200 feet across, with a temperature at its nucleus nearing 100 million degrees, engulfed a third of a million human beings. The Enola Gaze flyers were stunned. Not a word passed on the intercom. Little boy had done his job. 8.16 a.m., August 6th, 1945, over the city of Hiroshima. Tinian, 17 years later, can be reached only by ocean-going vessel on a very restricted schedule. Not a sign of life is visible as your ship circles to the south shore and moves into the protection of the CB-created breakwater. A few natives wander up and lines are thrown to the deck. Only one American lives on the island today, the Reverend Father Roy Richter of Tinian's Catholic Church Mission. The uh, people of uh, Tinian there are about, uh, at the present time, about 420 native people on Tinian. And uh, they uh, are living on the uh, western side of the island in a single village known as uh, San Jose Village. It is a new uh, San Jose village because uh, it is uh, a village that uh, has been uh, created just about five years ago in order to bring it closer to the uh, this docking area here that we are on at the present time. Before that, the village was five miles uh, further uh, north and uh, it was always a problem getting transportation to this uh, docking area when the boats came in. It seemed incredible that where the world's largest airfield had existed, only sea transportation now remained. Now, strange may seem, uh, uh, this uh, on the island Tinian, we had uh, one of the biggest uh, populated areas of all these islands uh, during the war when the Air Force was here. And uh, of course, there were plenty of planes uh, available at that time, the B-29s in particular, but uh, at the present time, there's not even one plane makes uh, appearance. Uh, while the Navy was here, uh, once in a while the Admiral would come up in his plane and land on the Allentinian, but uh, uh, at the present time we don't even get that. I made the trek with Father Richter to the north end of the island to see what was left of the world's largest airfield. This is the recording. It was a trip of only five miles, but it has taken us nearly two hours to reach this site on the northern end of Tinian. In 1945, wide highways crossed this island, highways designed to carry the thousands of U.S. military personnel who were stationed here, and in particular the crews of the 20th Air Force's B-29s who flew the missions against Japan. The wide highways are gone now. They're gone from sight, that is. The jungle has grown over them almost completely in many places. 
As we rode in our jeep through that jungle, it was like a trip through a long, long tunnel. The jungle has grown together above the road and almost completely cuts off the sunlight. We had to stop many times to clear away the growth with machetes. I am now standing about five feet from the site where the first atomic bomb was assembled and loaded into one of those B-29 17 years ago. There is a small white column marking the position. It appears that someone has used it for target practice. It's chipped in four places where bullets have hit it. On top of the column is a weather-stained plaque which reads as follows. From this loading pit, the first atomic bomb ever to be used in combat was loaded aboard a B-29 aircraft and dropped on Hiroshima, Japan, August 6, 1945. The bomber was piloted by Colonel Paul W. Tibbetts, Jr., USAAF of the 509th Composite Group, 20th Air Force, United States Army Air Forces. As I turn away from this statement of history, I can trace the path the Enola Gay took as she taxied from this revetment on her fateful mission. On the other side is another revetment where the B-29, dubbed the Boxcar, received an atomic bomb for the strike several days later against Nagasaki. About a hundred yards down, the taxiway turns into one of the immense takeoff strips. The jungle has eaten away at the sides of the strip and has begun to erupt through its concrete surface. In one place, I can see through a break in the jungle to Mount Tapachau, which rises over 2,000 feet on Saipan, three miles across the strait from Tinian. There's a little bit of wind today, and huge white clouds are scudding across the sky, hiding the sun for many minutes at a time. It's a lonely spot here on this forgotten island, it's hard to believe that the entire future of mankind was altered because of what happened here so many years ago. Tinian, 1962. As I sat with Admiral Nimitz several weeks ago in his study at his home in Berkeley, California, it seemed incredible that 21 years had gone by since it all began on a Sunday morning at Pearl Harbor. God was very much with us that morning the gray-haired, 77-year-old man was saying, it could have been a great deal worse. If Kimmel had been given sufficient notice, he would have steamed to meet the Japanese with every ship we had at Pearl. The Japanese ships were faster. They had six aircraft carriers and we had none. Nagumo would have destroyed every one of our ships in deep water. And we would have lost 60,000 men instead of 3,000. Most of the ships and men at Pearl Harbor lived to fight again. That very fact may have shortened the war by years and saved a hundred thousand lives. Perhaps yours among them, young man. Then he smiled broadly and said, Would you like an autographed picture of the surrender ceremony? That would be very nice, sir, I replied. He scratched for a moment on the picture with a pen, dried the ink carefully with a blotter, and handed me the photo. I read slowly to myself, the Japanese surrender, USS Missouri, Tokyo Bay, 2 September 1945. To Frederick Gurner with best wishes and great appreciation of your contribution to the war effort in the Pacific that made the above scene possible. C.W. Nimitz, Fleet Admiral, USN. I was grateful, and for a moment I felt a great gladness.
Gladness that the carnage is past. The B-29s are but a whisper on the wind, and the thunder of invasion has long since been silenced. Remember to follow the News Vault from KCBS Radio on social media. On Facebook, we're at News Vault Podcast. On Twitter, find us at News Vault SF. On Instagram, we're at News Vault. Until our next episode, you are leaving the News Vault from KCBS Radio. is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 